0: Please let yourself come back in and sit comfortably at ease. Today is Labor Day, and tomorrow is my daughter's first day of high school, and certainly around now it's the beginning of the school year. It's also a preparation time for um, later this week for Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, and it's really a time of the turning of the seasons, to take a breath, to sit quietly, to begin to feel how our life is turned by the seasons itself. It's not so much that we're in charge, but that some greater reality is carrying us through our lives. And the meaning of meditation or Sabbath or holiday, holy day, is to stop and feel that greater current of one's life and not just the current of, our complexity and schedule and busyness. And tonight I'd like to speak about Labor Day and labor um, as a way of honoring the laborers who came before us, our forefathers and foremothers, and to celebrate and reverence and revere and remind ourselves that we rest on the backs and shoulders and efforts, of generations of ancestors and forebears, and even now, of so many people who grow our food and carry things for us, and teach our children and, um, you know, take charge of the water that we're able to drink, that our lives are so dependent on the labors and the care of so many thousand other people. But it goes back much further than that. If we were to pay respects to our ancestors, I suppose it would be to the creatures of the sea that came out and kind of looked around on dry land and said, well, let's try this for a a while. See how this works. Or genetically back to our original African mother. From which all the other human beings, it would appear, have come uh, to take these many different forms. Or maybe our more recent history, whether it's Irish or Spanish or Mayan or Middle Eastern as mine is. I was just in this summer traveling in France and went to visit the the shop where my grandfather and great-grandfather, my great-parents, the great-grandparents, the ones who had come from Turkey to America had stopped and had a a shop in Paris for a while before they came to the U.S. to see those and I think about all the people who had um, taught their children to read or taught their children how to sew or taught their children how to do the things that allowed the next generation to live all of the people who taught your grandparents, their great grandparents, investing in the next generations, and so there's both this appreciation of my Jewish ancestry and the Middle Eastern ancestry from which I come, and then, as somebody asked Ramdas about his Jewish ancestry, and he said, "Well, yes." But I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. You know? <laughs> and there's this whole other side of our ancestors. I have ancestors which include Ajahn Chah and Buddhadasa and Mahasi Sayadaw, who are the elders that have for in their lineage of elders for thousands of years carried these practices of teachings that changed my life. And we all have those. And we are carried by our elders and by our um, ancestors and by the friends and the humans we don't even know who carry us and the other creatures. And, you know, we live in America where you think you're independent. (laughs) By what miracle does this cracker made of Kansas wheat, the cheese ripened in French caves and this fig grown and dried near the Euphrates turn into me? my hands, my eyes, my cells, organs, juices, thoughts. Am I not then Kansas wheat and French cheese and Smyrna fig, figs no doubt the ancient prophets also ate? If we reflect on the spiritual perspective on Labor Day and labor, listening to the kids out there in the night. (laughs) Hi, you guys. I could speak about two kinds of labor. One we could call the labor of love, where the work or actions we do um, are wedded with a care. Whatever action it is, they have the care of our heart. And the second kind of labor you might call the labor for production to get something done. And in this second kind, even as we do it, usually there's a sense that something's missing. Now we're warming up for another long, hot political season, I'm sorry to say, in which things like jobs and the economy you know, are being mouthed and driveled about. Um, And it's true, there's low unemployment in certain ways, but yet there are certain communities, even in our own country, which still have enormously high unemployment because of injustice and racism. And the main industry sometimes is poverty prisons in those places. If you're born in the wrong class, it's not a classless society. If you're born as a young, child in the wrong class and in the wrong place in this country it is really really difficult and to be unemployed itself to not have an opportunity to work can be incredibly painful to have no place to give productive work is to be robbed of some essential humanity or meaning but having some work any work is a kind of a gift. To work and have it connect with our sense of the place in the world is an even greater gift. You know, in India, um, I've said this before, instead of the kind of American greeting that we have when you meet somebody, you ask them what they do, people don't generally in India ask another person, what do you do? partly i believe that's because nobody in india does very much you know <laughs> which i consider actually a rather wise thing so um, but in addition it's because it's not the primary interest what do you do you know my father was a rice farmer or a wheat farmer or a shoemaker or a tailor and i'm i do tailoring that's what was given but the question that's most often asked in india is what form of god do you worship they meet somebody not what do you do, but do you worship Shiva, or Durga, or Kali, or Krishna, or Ram? What, what form of the sacred do you worship? What a way to meet somebody. Who do you worship? That's pretty cool. And I know, having been a taxi driver myself in Boston for some years, which gave me really bad driving habits, <laughs> and, and that I'm quite aware of as my daughter is watching me getting ready to drive. You know, in Boston, a red light is only a suggestion. But anyway, when you go to India and you get in these taxis and these, you know, rickety, amazing, wonderful old Indian taxis, almost every taxi has a big altar on the dashboard, you know, and it's their form of God and there's incense and there's offerings and things. And you get in the taxi, but it's also like this little temple, you know, and it's quite fantastic. Mm. I think uh, uh, this is from a a poem of Jane Hirschfield where she writes, I think it was from the animals that St. Francis learned that it is possible to cast yourself upon the good mercies of the earth and live. I read you a story, an Indian story. A little Indian village, there was a weaver who was quite pious, and all day long as he worked, he would pronounce the name of God. And when he'd woven some cloth, he'd take it to the market, and if anyone asked the price, he would say, by the will of Ram, the price of the yarn is 35 cents, the labor is 10 cents, and the profit by the will of Ram is 4 cents. So the price of this piece, by the will of Ram, is 49 cents. And people had such faith in his piety, they just gave him what he asked for. Now, the weaver was in the habit of going to the temple at night to chant the songs and praise of the divine. And Late one night, while he was there, a band of robbers burst in, and they needed someone to carry all their stolen goods for them, so they said, you, you must come with us. And he, meekly, not knowing what to do, accompanied them. Soon the police gave chase, and because the weaver's was an older man and the robber's younger. He ran with them, but they caught up with him first, and finding him carrying all the stolen goods, they threw him in jail. Following morning, he was sent before the judge, accused of burglary. And when the judge asked him what he had to say for himself, this is his answer. Your Honor, by the will of Ram, I finished my meal last night, and by the will of Ram, I went to the temple there to chant his praises. That is when suddenly, by the will of Ram, a band of robbers burst in, and by Rama's will, they invited me to carry their goods for them. I had no choice. Then, by the will of Ram, I was... The police gave chase, and I was easily caught. And by the will of Ram, I was arrested and thrown in jail. And here I am standing before you this morning by the will of Ram. The judge said to the policeman, This guy is out of his mind. Let him go. <laughs> and when he got back home, and the people asked what had happened, the man said, by the will of Ram I was arrested and tried in court, and by the will of Ram I have been acquitted. <laughs> There's a story in this book, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, um, that I got from an unusual source. And it's, a, it's from a taxi driver in Boston, actually. Um, and it was a winter day, and all the traffic st- stopped up and the author of the story is really impatient because he's got to get to a meeting. Everybody else is getting apoplectic and the taxi driver said, look at these people. They can't get anywhere. We're stuck. Why are they having fits? Why can't they be where they are? And then the author says, well, you know, maybe they're late for work. And the taxi driver smiles and says, I'm never late for work. I'm on time as soon as I get in my cab. I'm not going anywhere. I am where I am. So the author says, well, you seem to like being a cab driver. Ah, oh, I wouldn't be anywhere else. In spring, the cherry blossoms. In the autumn, I get to drive through the f- leaves of the fall. And all the people, they're unhappy. Why? Because they're not where they think they should be. They want to be somewhere else. Me? Do you know when I get out of my cab? When? When I feel like it. And that's when I get back in it. And I'm happy to be where I am. So this goes on for a while. And then, as they get to the destination, finally he says, I don't know what you do for a living, mister, but whatever it is, I hope you like it because it's not worth it if you don't. And he drove off, and I looked at him for a long time, and here I was, about to go into a building. To see a man I didn't want to see, to have a meeting that I didn't want to have, and do some work that I didn't want to do, and I was the governor of the state of Massachusetts. And I thought, maybe I should trade places with this fellow. That was Governor Foster of Massachusetts. So right livelihood, or wise livelihood, which is taught in Buddhist teaching as part of the Eightfold Path of Awakening, is actually considered one of the factors of enlightenment, or one of the expressions of enlightenment. How to understand this? Traditionally, in one way, right livelihood is an aspect of integrity of the heart, to live in a way that doesn't harm other beings, to not deal in weapons, or drugs, or in the exploitation of others. And it's actually kind of confusing in our society, Because in some ways we seem very wealthy. We are very wealthy. Um, But in other ways, part of our wealth is derived from being the largest weapons exporter on the face of the earth ever over these last 10 or 20 years. We import all these nice things from Germany and Japan and China and so forth and pay for them by selling fighter planes, bazookas, um, landmines in billions and billions of dollars worth It's one of our big industries. Um, And it's something that I talk about regularly because in our hearts we really don't want that. And yet it's not made conscious. Vaclav Havel, who was the president of Czechoslovakia, when he got out of prison, which was the proper training, I think, for a politician, if you ask me, they should go in before and not afterward, you know, in our country. One of the first things he did is he decreed that Czechoslovakia would no longer export arms for sale. Imagine that. Imagine the president doing that. Quite fantastic. But instead, in our political season, we don't talk about that. You know, we talk about gross national product, maybe the emphasis on the gross part, you know, and social security. Security, remember what Helen Keller said, is mostly a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature and children don't experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. But we're worried about our security um, and how much money the nation is making and things like that instead of really looking toward the soul of our society and of our being. A good friend or a friend, a woman that I admire very much, Helena Norbert Hodge, um, started the Ladakh project. Ladakh is an area in the Himalayas, like Tibet. And when she first began 30 years ago and worked in the villages, the people there felt that they were wealthy because they had beautiful temples and enough fields to plant barley and good family and community and schools to learn things. And what more do you need? But in the course of the 30 years of working with the Ladakhis, in has come satellite dishes and television and advertising and all these other things. And now when she goes to speak with them, they say, oh, we are such a poor, backward people. You know, we don't have wristwatches, we don't have cell phones, we don't have computers, we don't have all the things that make you happy. And now we are very unhappy. Men and women are free to choose anything in economic societies except to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in economics and the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. It's interesting, isn't it, to look at Well, what are the values? What actually makes us happy as human beings? And is it production? Is it getting things done? Another story for you of a different kind. A 14-year-old boy announced at dinner one evening he'd been chosen to teach his class the next day. His father, who was an expert in instructional methods for business, seized this occasion to train his son. (laughs) <laughs> this is the way we go about it when we teach our contractors, he said. First, we choose the objectives made up of action, situation, level of performance. Now decide ahead of time what action you want your students to perform, in what situation you want them to perform it, and finally, how well you wish them to perform. And remember, all education must be directed at this. Performance, performance, performance. The boy wasn't impressed. All he said was, it won't work, Dad. Of course it will. It always works. Why wouldn't it work? Because, said his young son, I'm supposed to give a class on sex. (laughs) If we look at a society, and the Buddha teaches this again and again, if we look at a life primarily from gross national product, from production, then our consciousness deteriorates when our work is done only to gain or for greed or money or power. And it becomes boring, empty. We lose our own self-respect. The tribe is lost when every day the sun rises and nobody sings. So how do we find satisfaction through work? First maybe is to know what's enough. JP Morgan said there's a certain Buddhistic calm that comes from having money in the bank. <laughs> right? But how much? You know, a hundred thousand, quarter of a million, half a million? How much is enough? How much work is enough? Forty hours? Fifty? Sixty? Eighty? I read a true story of a Russian delegation in the Cold War days who visited a Detroit factory as the Cold War was ending, looked at how the cars were made, and asked the foreman, how many hours a week, you know, do your workers work? Um, And the foreman said, well, 38 to 40 hours, it's in our union contract. And the Russian, you know, factory foreman said, in our factories, the average worker does 60 hours a week. And the Detroit foreman said, you'd never get these guys to do that. They're a bunch of lazy commies. (laughs) (laughs) The first noble truth of the Buddhist teaching, which is called dukkha, insecurity, struggle, dissatisfaction, says that if we don't look truthfully at what makes us happy, we can never find freedom that there is dissatisfaction and struggle and suffering. And the second noble truth is its cause, that the cause of this is craving and wanting and grasping. And if we follow greed and desire and grasping and need for security as our main functions, if we observe that, the truth is that we'll never have enough. Because no matter how much you have, if inside the need is still there, whatever it is, isn't enough. And yet if one goes to the places where life is still more seamless and whole, in the wisest of the village cultures that still exist in many, many parts of the world, there's a whole different sense of work as being woven into the life that we all share. Plato put it this way, poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, the line from Wordsworth. Do all these things to gain things, and then it's not, you know, you have what you have, and then it's not enough. You can't even take pleasure in it sometimes because you think of the next thing that you have to do or succeed or the next ambition. And it's not just us. It's actually gotten to where um, the cultural description of childhood is shifting from being a child to being a consumer. Children are primarily viewed now as consumers. From Rabindranath Tagore, Indian poet writes, the child who is decked with prince's robes, and has jeweled chains round his neck, loses all pleasure in his play; his garments hamper him at every step. It's the in India it's called the golden chain. And I know kids who have everything, have every video station and, you know, every, you know, kind of plastic thing that ever was imagined and manufactured and sold to kids. And they say, I'm bored. I'm bored. And I knew kids for the years that I lived in the various villages that I worked in and lived in, who would put a tin can on a stick with a nail as a wheel, you know, or Or the buffalo boys who took care of the water buffaloes and would ride on their back or work with trees. Or if they had marbles, it was fantastic to have a dozen marbles. You would have days and days of activities. Now, because this is coming up to be the year 2000 elections, I want to do a little um, reminder of the roots of this kind of culture that we lose ourselves in when we're not so conscious. Modern economic civilization um, comes in part from the 1600s from Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and the idea of the social contract which says that we are innately separate and out for ourselves driven by desire for power and goods, right? That's the basic belief and at that time Science and work was separated from anything spiritual. The church was there, and now we're going to have a sec- secular society. And thus was posited certain rules for governance, which were that we agreed from Hobbes and Locke to these rules or laws so that we would not take undue advantage of one another as we each were out for ourselves. That's the vision of modern society. And Freud had his own vision of it. Culture has to call up every possible reinforcement in order to erect barriers against the aggressive instincts of men. Right? Its ideal command to love one's neighbor as oneself is really justified by the fact that nothing is so completely at variance with original human nature as this. That's in civilization and its discontent. So that's some kind of vision of how human beings are supposed to be, out for themselves, driven by desire for power and goods, um, not to be trusted. But yet we know, if we look in our hearts, that it's not the truth, that community or even government without virtue is unsuccessful. It's not possible. Without love, without care, Even James Madison, founding the country, wrote, he said, no amount of checks and balances, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without virtue in the people is a mistaken and delusional idea. If we don't carry it in our spirit, in our hearts, it simply won't work. And Thomas Macaulay, who was writing about how the end of empires like Rome happened, the vandals and the goths and the Visigoths and all that. But then at one point he wrote of our modern times, of the vandals and so forth. Only this time the barbarians are not at the gates. The barbarians have been running the country for some time now. So what does this have to do with wise livelihood, the teachings of the Buddha, To follow the Dharma, the Tao, the the law of the heart is often to swim upstream to go against the current of the forces around us and it's true. And happiness in the heart and in the Dharma comes not by possession or accumulation or greed and it doesn't come from oneself alone. It comes through our interconnectedness. Through our honoring of life, we become happy. Through our respect for others, through our generosity. As it says in the Tao, wheat relies on the rain and the sail relies on the wind and I, a merchant, rely on my customers. Our happiness comes when we're in harmony with the interdependence of our life. Again, Alex de Tocqueville, who was the you know the french historian who looked at the american experiment in the 1800s he wrote it is possible to have outer liberty and still be enslaved the time may come in america when men are carried away by the pursuit of wealth so as to lose all self-restraint and in their exclusive anxiety to make a fortune they will neglect their chief business which is to remain their own masters. What does it mean really to be free? The freedom is in the heart. And it's the freedom of knowing what is enough, of moderation, of being true to ourselves, of living from our values. If you're not free to live what is really true in you, what kind of freedom is it? Aldous Huxley put it this way. He said, an idolatrous religion, a religion of idols, is one in which time is substituted for eternity. We're living that these days. I mean, I have my little schedule book, and success is worse than failure sometimes. All of a sudden you're successful, and you realize you don't even own your own life anymore. You have all these things to do. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for the sense of eternity. Future time in the idea of progress and gra- gain is the devil's work demanding human sacrifice of so many of us on an enormous scale. The words of the Buddha as a counterpoint to this, right livelihood or wise livelihood in its positive sense is the means of living in the eternal present and offering ourselves. Do not pursue the past, says the Buddha. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer exists. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is here and now, the practitioner, the wise one, dwells in stability and freedom. Not enslaved by anything, hopes, or fears. It is possible to put aside craving, and the result is a life of peace and joy. To live in the reality of the present is the invitation. To live in a different way, and we all know it. You all know it. You've all tasted it many times. In the monastery, you sweep the paths, you clean your hut, you clean the toilets in the bathrooms, you chop in the kitchen, you help be build, you go to the meetings of the monks, and the, you do the rituals that are necessary. It's not like you sit around and are idle. And there's a wonderful Zen text called Instructions to the Cook by Zen Master Dogen of how you should wash each carrot and you know, take care with every bit of food, not to waste it. It's actually pretty boring work. It's not terribly different than working, you know, as a toll taker or an assembly line or an office worker or something. You just do this blessed monotony, Gandhi called it, over and over again. But somehow there's a difference. Because the idea isn't to have the perfect job. That is, for most of us, an American myth, really, that there's some, it's like the perfect partner, good luck. You know, they seem perfect at first and then you get to know them or worse, they get to know you, right? <laughs> but rather one that allows you to give something. Some work that allows us to give not the perfect work, but the work that we have. And when we bring our heart to it, it changes everything. Everything. You know, I remember when I was a boy in the 1950s and I had polio and I was in the hospital and I was paralyzed and they weren't sure whether I would get out and be able to move and walk and so forth. And I did, you know, it all worked out for me very well. And how incredibly happy I was just to walk down the street, and play in the park. I was just ecstatic to do the ordinary things that anybody does. I was so grateful. It's like the story of the two men in Europe. One who was asked, what are you doing? and He said, I'm hauling stones at, you know, 50 francs an hour and squaring them off and uh, it's, it's my job. And the second man who was doing the same thing was asked, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm helping to build a great cathedral. And it was the same work, but the vision was different. So, wise livelihood means, in some ways, bringing ourselves to what we do as a sacred act. The simplest thing cooking, cleaning, offering, and using it as a means to give back to the world. Because, as human beings, we each have a deep longing to give to the world our creativity our labor, our gifts, our love. And in some way, this is what we honor today, how much others have given, and the beauty of it, of that service, the blessing of it. The Buddha said that to be skilled in some work is one of the greatest blessings, to have something to offer the world. And one of my good friends from West Africa says that when you're born into the Dagara villages, which is where he lives, that even as you're born, the, the elders of the village come together and try to divine or sense what is the gift that this particular child is bringing into the community so that it can be known and fostered, because the purpose of being born is to bring your gift to the earth. And the same understanding is there in Bali when a child is born. What is the gift that this one brings as a teacher or as a gardener or as a healer or as a midwife or as a dancer, a musician or a builder? The same is true in the Mayan culture. And if we're unemployed or unable to give or unable to care for others, care for ourselves, It's really a great sorrow. This is because unlike Freud or Hobbes or Locke, some deep place in our being, in our Buddha nature, knows that we are connected, knows interdependence, and knows that our own interest is the same as our brothers and sisters in our community. That we breathe and eat and drive and drink what is eternal, We share it with our, that the world is our family. And there's a beauty and a dignity when we find some way to give from ourselves. A happiness to it. And the happiness is not what we get, but what we give. Thomas Merton put it this way, his work as a writer. He said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy But if you write for men and women, you'll make some money and may give someone a little joy and you make a little noise in the world for a while. But if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you wish that you were dead. (laughs) It means, in the end, that labor, wise labor is not the perfect job. I mean, and I've seen toll takers on the bridges here that are, you know, welcome you to the city of St. Francis. It's like they're (laughs) spokeswomen and spokesmen for St. Francis. But it's the spirit that we bring to what we do. Like the Cherokee chief who said, I tell our children that the way to get honor is to go to work and give their hearts to the work they do. That will bring them honor. What seeds do we plant with the work that we do? Seeds of connection, of compassion, of care. Because goodness can be planted as seeds. It's a great and powerful force. And the spirit that we act, the Buddha says, is contagious. Compassion, loving kindness, we catch it from one another. We awaken it in one another. And it transforms everyone that we touch. In Zen it said there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So we sit here in meditation to find a place of peace and freedom that is every human's birthright. To find that greatness of heart in the midst of the joys and sorrows and the changing circumstances that is this humanity that we've been given. And then when we find that, all the desires and fears and hopes and all those things come and go, and we find that space that can rest on the earth with joy, with some freedom, with peace, then we get up and we sweep the garden, which is really the garden of the earth. And then maybe each time that we answer the phone or greet a customer or a client or cook a meal, or paint a painting, or build a house. If we're connected with this place of awakened livelihood, which is to say, living in the reality of the present to do what we do for its own beauty rather than where it's gonna go in the future, then we bring our gift to the world. But that the Lord build your house, it says in the Bible, but that the Lord build your house you build it in vain. And it was really great to live in the cultures in Indonesia and Bali, because every time, even before someone would go to work, if it was a carpenter, in the morning before they would go, they would make this beautiful offering of flowers and bamboo and things, and bless all their tools, that the tools would act in their hands as a conduit for something sacred to happen. I mean, it was great, you know, the the taxis all had shrines, as I talked about, and the cars had shrines, and the, you know, um, we lived in this village Panestanon outside of Ubud, and and the the house we lived in had no electricity, and then electricity came one of the years later that we were living there, and they did this whole amazing shrine for the electric meter, you know, and for the power that was going to come and give them lights, and everything was taken. As an object or as a, a as a way of offering devotion, in that sense, wise livelihood becomes the the shift from the small sense of self, this separateness, the Freudian or hobbesian you know separateness that's not true from what we call the body of fear, to a place of freedom where we act with our whole body and heart and mind together where we can revere and celebrate and honor and ennoble and love this earth and the community in which we're born. People say said Joseph Campbell that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking at all. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so alive that our life experiences and this human plane will have resonances within our innermost being and will actually feel the wonder of being alive. The Buddha said that if awakening in all the realms, including where you are, where I am, was not possible, I would not teach it. But since awakening and enlightenment, In every place that you find yourself is possible. I have taught it. I've taught it to remind you. And these teachings or the Dharma are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And So this is the teaching of wise or right livelihood. Let's sit for a minute. and a few simple reflections. First, in your own work and livelihood, is it a livelihood that brings harm to others? And if it does, how can you get out of it? What would it take to stop? Really simple. And second, if it's work that doesn't bring harm to others, but is simply the work of being human and some form on this earth, how could you learn to do it as your spiritual practice? Vision, imagine, picture, sense, what it would be like to make the work that you have been given at this time sacred, to make it a gift, to bring beauty to it and to those you touch. What would you have to trust in yourself? What beauty or capacity would you have to believe in? And what would we have to let go of to live in that way? What's true about the Buddhist teachings in this way is not that they provide answers, but that they ask questions so that we really look and find the answers that we know in our hearts from our own Buddha nature, our own true nature. They really point us back to that because you know as well as I or anyone. So in a moment we'll... uh, get ready to go out in this fine late summer evening. I'd like us to chant before we do, but a couple of very brief announcements. One is about housing. Um, my family and I are looking for a place to house it or to rent for the last couple of weeks up October and the first week of November because we have some construction stuff happening at our house. So particularly in San Valley or Fairfax or something, if anyone knows please let, let us know. And we're also looking for, um, Spirit Rock is looking for a place for a week around New Year's for one of the teachers of the New Year's retreat and her family, if anyone's going away and lives in this area. So you could let me know about either of those. Um, something to ask about carpooling and parking. People have been great in terms of carpooling, and I thank you. And we promised the county we would do it because there's so much traffic on this road. And we also promised the earth we would carpool because pretty soon you're going to need to get an appointment to use the roads in the Bay Area. They're getting so crowded. Um, and we want to minimize the pollution and the number of cars, so it's partly our, also our commitment to the environment. We have to ask you, please, um, thank you for all the people at Carpool, please not to park along Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. We promised that we wouldn't do it. We promised the neighbors, and also it's not safe. Um, and not also to park out in the front of the property, you know, um, if you've not carpooled and, you know, you have some reasonable excuse or whatever, come in. But, um, if a couple people start parking in the front there, then pretty soon everybody will and it's not going to work. And we're really trying to make a system that's respectful of the roads and of ourselves and, and so forth. Um... Next week, I'll be sitting, there's a retreat here with Ajahn Amro, one of our teachers, and a Tibetan lama, Sobhni Rinpoche. So that lama, Sobhni Rinpoche, who speaks quite fluent English and is a marvelous Tibetan teacher, will do Monday night, and I'll be up there meditating happily myself. I hope, I don't know, maybe I won't be happy, but I'll be up there nevertheless doing something. There's no dinner next Monday night, so that's a reminder, because it's a big retreat and pretty crowded. Uh, So again, I thank you all for coming. Thank you for your generosity and for the spirit that you carry into the world. Tonight I'd like to end with this simple chant, Namo, which is from that root Sanskrit word that means to bow to or honor. Namaste, I honor the divine within you, is how they greet one another in India and namo, um, to bow to our honor. As we chant it, you can bow to elders, to ancestors, to all those who carry you as you then care for and carry those that follow you. We'll chant it nine times and then go out into the summer (coughs) evening. Namo. (laughs) Namo <laughs> ah, Namo Namo Add harmony Namo Namo to be still this week to rest to meditate to walk in the trees to stay in touch with your heart so that whatever you do your work your family your community comes from that place of love and understanding that is there in you as soon as you listen thank you good night